Shabbat Shalom. What we're going to talk about today, our country, the homes in this country, scattered across this country, the churches, the synagogues, are in desperate need of this thing. This community is in desperate need of this particular thing that I'm talking about. In fact, I would absolutely, and the reason it fits well in spiritual warfare, I would identify this thing as a weapon. And not just any weapon, the king of all weapons. We were to bring this into modern day military terms. The best way to describe it is a nuclear warhead. And you think about the power of nuclear weapons that it has in warfare today. You will notice that countries like North Korea, countries like Russia, uh, countries like the United States of America that are heavily armed, they are armed to the teeth with nuclear warheads. You will notice no country in the world is eager to go to war against them. I'm going to tell you why. And this is why South Korea has to be so diplomatic in, in their relationship with North Korea. It's always a sensitive situation. Certainly not even the U.S. wants to get involved because they have a nuclear arsenal available at their disposal. And let me tell you something. When, when the nuclear bomb hits its mark, when it hits its mark, there's nothing left. The destruction that it wrought is awesome. It is an awesome power, and the men on the face of this earth, they fear it. And if you think the nuclear weapon itself is just contained to the blast radius, and keep in mind the amount of energy that is released there is literally equal to the sun, the heat of the sun. You think about the power but it's not just the blast radius, it goes beyond that. See, that's when the thermal radiation starts to spread across, and the thermal radiation to be so intense that it lights everything on fire in its path. You think about this weapon. Well, today we're going to talk about the nuclear weapon of the faith. And what is that? It's revival. It's revival. Revival possesses the lethal power to literally decimate, obliterate, vaporize the works of the enemy. The works of Hasatan. All those strongholds, the addictions, the afflictions, the bondages, the curses that you're dealing with in your life. When the nuclear bomb or revival goes off, it disappears. And I'm telling you something, I have witnessed it. I have personally witnessed it, and I have experienced it. Revival is real. It exists. Is anybody here, raise your hands, has anyone here experienced revival? True revival of what I'm talking about. One there, Mike. Mike, come up. We're going to be impromptu today. Bring your mic, Mike. This is going to be impromptu. I want you to stand here, Mike. I want to know a couple things. Number one, where did you experience revival? What did you see? That was a power. This is it's going to be powerful. Wow. Just, just briefly tell us where this happened, what you experienced, what you saw. Well, revival began in a little church that we were a part of, and uh, it wasn't the church itself, but it was numerous hearts of many people coming with hunger for the Lord and coming with a desire for a deeper touch. And, and as we entered into deep worship, 
Spirit of God began to fall on the house and revival begins to break out when God shows up in that way. And, and the Ruach has the power to change our lives in situations like that. And it's the humbling and, and it was the uh, hunger that really helped institute this as I look back on it. Awesome. Thank you. So just being impromptu, and there's many other people I could call up here that raised your hands. I am telling you what I have seen and what I have experienced it is the real thing. It is the real deal. How many of you want to experience what Mike just explained, what I explained? How many of you really want to experience an authentic revival? And I'm not talking about where people are flopping on the ground, barking like dogs. I'm not talking about where people are running up and down the halls, laughing hysterically. Can we trim? That's not what I'm talking about. If, the, if you think that's what I'm talking about, the crazy stuff, many of you have heard of the, the Brownsville Revival. And uh, I'm just going to tell you something. I was there uh, in the initial part of Brownsville Revival. I went down there with uh, my parents back in the day. And I'm telling you, the authentic was there. Authentic move of the Holy Spirit. People's hearts broken, crying out for God. It was authentic. Now, certainly... The devil does what he does best. He comes in to disrupt that which is authentic. And you can expect that to happen in any real revival. But what I want to talk about today is the authentic. Life transformation. So we're going to be addressing revival. And, and I'm going to be answering questions like, what is revival? What are the effects of it? In other words, what should we see? When we say revival, we want to have a revival, what should we be experiencing? What are the things that we should see? What should be going outside of this building? How is it to affect others? And not just that, but then we got to ask the question, of course, well, how in the world do we get this thing going? How do we get revival started? I want to begin today by opening up with a statement. It was made by an evangelist pastor revivalist from the mid-1800s to even into the early 1900s. He was a contemporary of uh, Dwight L. Moody. Many of you have heard of the Moody, Moody Bible Institute. Um, he actually worked with Moody. His name is R.A. Torrey. And R.A. Torrey was an actual revivalist, had a ton of experience, basically traveled to every country on this earth, at least that spoke in the English language, and literally sparked revival. Massive experience in this field, well, he made an assessment in regard to revival. It's a three-part assessment, giving three steps to make revival happen. And we're going to look at his three steps. We're going to look at this assessment today, uh, and we're going to learn a lot. This is what he says. I can give a prescription that will bring a revival to any church or community or any city on earth. First, let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest that I am to say will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together in a prayer group to pray for a revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for him to use as he sees fit and winning others to Christ. That is all. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something about these three steps. I know 
for a fact, if we follow these three steps, revival will come to Corner Fringe. And it won't be contained here. It will go outside of these walls. And that's the concept. And the reason I can say this is because every single step he just mentioned is absolutely fundamentally supported by the Bible. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to utilize his statement and his assessment on what he saw and how revival would work. Three steps. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna isolate each step and we're going to look at them from a scriptural standpoint. Because here's what needs to happen. The Lord has put revival in my heart. And to make this work and to make this happen, the vision has to be cast. We have to know what we're going after. And we need to do it together. So let's go back. We'll go back to the first step. And this is what we, this is what we read. First, let a few Christians, they need not be many, yet thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. Now, there's actually two things that he mentions here that are worthy of note. Number one, revival doesn't require a crowd of hundreds. Revival doesn't require a crowd of thousands. We don't need to go to an auditorium that is standing room only with this concept that, oh, surely the Lord is going to show up there. We got to get a hold of this. Um, We don't need that. It's amazing what Mike just said. His own testimony It was just with the little church. started out with a few people. It wasn't even the church itself. The hearts of the people. Just a few. Now, I am not placing any negative connotation on thousands of people gathering to give glory to Yeshua. That's that's insane. That's ridiculous. I, I enjoy that. We want to be a part of that kind of crew. What I'm telling you, it's not necessary for authentic revival to begin. And how do I know this? Because Yeshua tells me so. And we go to Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, revival. We're asking for revival. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three are gathered together in my name, what does he say? I am there in the midst of them. It's exactly what Tori said. It only requires a few, and quite literally two, with hearts that have been unified, that have come to Yeshua to petition Him and ask Him, we want revival, Lord. Send the fire. Send the Holy Spirit. This is what we cry out for. And Yeshua said, I am there in the midst of them. You want to know where the power is? The power is in Yeshua. Everything that I have read in Scripture, everything teaches me that wherever Yeshua is, that is where the party is. That's, his, that's where the things are happening. That's where you see him walking on water. That's where you see the blind being given their sight, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised. Everywhere Yeshua went, there was power. People were grabbing onto a zitzit, and power was going out from him, healing those who believed in him. And so when Yeshua tells me, now understand something, we're going to learn a concept today that is so critical. The teachings of Yeshua are so deep, they are so brilliant, I want you to realize they are trying, he's trying to build our faith and unlock mysteries, unlock the power of heaven in your lives. 
And a perfect example is right here. He's telling you, just get together with someone else. Be confirmed on the testimony of two or three. Call upon my name, and he is going to show up. That is the promise. And I know when Yeshua shows up, there's revival. You ask for it, it's going to happen. The power is in him. The second thing I want you to note in regard to, we'll call it step one, that R.A. Torrey says, I'll put it back up here, get thoroughly right with God. Get right with God. Very simple. You want revival, this has to happen before anything else. There has to be a change of heart. So you need to understand, it's the change of heart that drives revival. This is the driving force. This is the engine, if you will, of the car. And what I mean by this, the heart, you need to have brokenness before the Lord. We need to have a broken heart, a heart that mourns the iniquities that we have committed, how we have failed our Rabbi Yeshua. We need to have a heart that grieves all those meditations of the flesh that carnival of debauchery that we have been meditating on, whether it's idolatry, covetousness, sexual immorality, all of these things are godless. They're abominable. We need to mourn these things. A broken heart starts to desire righteousness. It starts to desire holiness. And it realizes it has perspective on the price that Yeshua paid on the cross. That's the reality. This is the heart that is required for revival. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, because Paul actually articulates this. Basically, the exact same concept that R.A. Tori is getting across of repentance. Because that's what we're talking about, having a heart of repentance. Well, let's build upon this. Paul says to the Corinthians, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow, here's the formula, godly sorrow produces repentance, and that leads to salvation. What do you think godly sorrow is? It's a condition of the heart, the conviction of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit going out into your hearts, and it cuts you like a knife, a double-edged knife, which is what the Word of God is. It's the word of the Lord cutting you to the heart. And when you embrace that godly sorrow, something happens in your life. You no longer walk according to the dictates of your own heart. You start walking according to what pleases the Lord. You walk in repentance. John the Baptist said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. So godly sorrow produces this beautiful conviction. When embraced, it produces repentance and that leads to salvation and paul says as he continues not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death now as paul continues he actually gives us the effect of what happens when we embrace this godly sorrow what this repentance if you will really looks like listen to what he says in verse 11 observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you, meaning endurance, perseverance. Perseverance of the faith. To be able to walk in righteousness despite all the arrows that are being shot at you and all the temptations you're facing. 
What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. Indignation. See, that's what godly sorrow does. It gives you a hatred for that which is evil. It gives you a hatred for that which God hates. And you love that which God loves. It's indignation. It's righteous. What fear, meaning the fear of God. What vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. You want to spark revival? You got to get to the core of the soul. You got to get to the heart. It is a matter of the heart. You'll notice that when John the Baptist went out preparing the way of the Lord, he went for the jugular, or we could say the heart. This is what he went after. Look at, look at what is said. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness in Judea and saying, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message. It is repentance. Do you know what John was? John was a revivalist. He brought revival. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and the the hearts of the children back to the fathers. That's revival. His ministry was a ministry of revival. His ministry was a ministry of repentance. Think about Yeshua himself. Same ministry, but even more powerful because it is him. He went out and the first words he spoke, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First words that he spoke in his ministry. He sparked revival. And what happened after Yeshua? He commissioned his 12 apostles and told them, go out and preach to the world repentance and remission of sins in his name. And what happened? They changed the world. It sparked the greatest revival in the history of the world. So the first step that needs to be taken to ignite this revival, we need men and women turning back to God. We need repentance. We need to call upon the name of Yeshua. I love what Spurgeon says in regard to this very thing. He says, sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. You must be divorced from your sinner. You cannot be married to Mashiach. Cannot happen. See, Spurgeon recognized here, you can't have revival. You can't have freedom. You can't have liberty without repentance without succumbing, surrendering to that godly conviction, the Holy Spirit pricking your heart, calling you back to righteousness. You cannot have revival without that. I want to give you just a couple scriptural examples where we see the revival message going out and what it is that repentance really is, what what God is asking from us uh, to do. 2 Kings 17, verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Yehuda by all his prophets, every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways. That's the call of revival. It's to go out and to cry out to the people, Turn from the wicked ways and do what? Keep my commandments. You know what it means to repent? It means to turn back to the ways of God. See, remember, we're hearing the voice of the world telling us what to admire, telling us what to desire. But no longer do you listen to the voice of the world. No longer do you listen to that whisper of the enemy, the demonic host of wickedness, enticing you, alluring you through the lust of your flesh. You're done with that. Now you're going to listen to the word of the Lord. 
you listen to the voice of God, you're willing to follow the spirit of the living God. That's what it means. That's what revival, that's the core of it. It's repentance. It's turning back and turning back to his ways. We continue, and my statutes according to all the Torah which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 8, give you another example. Nehemiah cries out, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moshe, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, There's a return. What is the return? It's repentance. It's to turn back. That's the godly sorrow in action. It's to turn back and keep his commandments and do them. Look at what happens. I call this revival. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Restoration. See, that's what revival is. Revival is restoration. We want restoration. We need to be restored. Ezekiel 18, give you one more example. Therefore I judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent. Heard this before. And turn from all your transgressions so that the iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. And do what? And get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This is what we need. This is what this country needs. This is what the churches and synagogues need. This is what we need. We need to get ourselves a new heart, a new spirit, which is to turn back to God, to crave Him with everything that we have. So that is step one. Step one, R.A. Torrey says, get a few men, just a few, and get right with God. This is it. Moving on to step two. Listen to what he says. Secondly, let them bind themselves together in a prayer group to pray for a revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. We want revival. We're going to need to band together as soldiers of the living God, interlocking the shields of faith, moving in the prayer of faith, crying out to Yeshua, and refusing to quit until the Lord answered the prayers. See, this is the faith of Elijah. Elijah prayed for rain. Guess what? It didn't rain. He sent out his servant. Do you see anything? Servant comes back to him. I see nothing. Elijah sends him out again. See anything? No, I see nothing. Elijah continues to pray. He does this over and over and over again until the seventh time. See, I learned something from Elijah. You don't stop. You learn something from R.A. Torrey, something where he was on the battlefield, on the front lines, destroying demonic hosts of wickedness, igniting revivals, something that you learn. We do not give up. We do not go backwards. We advance in prayer. Do you know that Yeshua actually commanded us to nag him? You think about that. And technically, we're the bride of Christ, right? And we've been commanded, as the wife, to do nagging. There's a a lot of laughter in here. I I wonder if husbands are familiar with this, or the wives. We're commanded to nag. And I can prove this. Read Luke 11. Read Luke 18. Yeshua says, 
pray and do not lose heart. And then he goes on and gives this beautiful story where this person was relentless in getting justice. This woman crying out to him. She would not give up. And he gave in. I'm going to tell you something. We hold fast to that tenacity. If we want revival, if we commit to revival, we will not stop praying until the fire of God falls. That's how it works. We need together, we need to bind together in the same faith, asking for this. You know, the, the concept that Tori is really getting across here is completely biblical. Ask and you shall receive. If we don't ask, we will not receive. But ask and ye shall receive. These are the words of Yeshua in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish... Will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The first thing I want to point out in this passage before we really dig into this, Yeshua is not a liar. He tells the truth. Therefore, every word that is spoken of here, it better sink down into the deepest recesses of your heart. Believe it. He has spoken it. It is true. Ask and ye shall receive. Now let me take this a step further. Notice how Yeshua constructs this passage in the sense that this passage is extremely humbling. Yeshua comes right out. He acknowledges the fact that despite us being evil, we still manage to know how to give good gifts to our children. Again, I'm going to say this, when you start to study the teachings of Yeshua, he is always doing, there's one common denominator, he is increasing our faith to a level that cannot be measured. And he does it here again. It is a humbling statement. This will change your prayer life. If you apply this principle that was just left for you, it will change your prayer life. And let me explain what I mean by this. Think about all you parents, and even if you're not a parent, it doesn't matter. Every single person in here can relate. But mothers and fathers, when their children come to them, and they say, Daddy, Daddy, Mommy, Mommy, I want this. Can Can you help me get this, or can you help me? Mom and Dad are quick to move. They are quick. They desire to love their children. Put this into context. If you have the wisdom and you have power, and you do, you have power to give your kids certain specific things. If you have the power to do that and you're evil, how much greater does your father have? How much more ability does he have to give us the things that we ask of him? He is more loving, more compassionate. It has changed. It changes the way I go to prayer. When I go to prayer... I think of this a lot before I even enter into prayer. I humble myself and go, oh, foolish Daniel. Foolish, foolish Daniel. If I know how to give good things to my children, you are far greater, Father. Far greater. And I know you have more ability than I do. Well, that changes my prayer. 
and talk about a prayer of faith, I'm going to tell you something. If you do not pray in faith, it will not happen. We are told over and over, faith is the conduit that connects us to the Lord. When Yeshua went out healing, do you believe that I can do this? He says this in Matthew 9. There's blind men asking them, Lord, Lord, do you believe that I can do this? Let it be according to your faith. James and James or Yaakov in, in chapter 1. He who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all. But then he sends out a warning. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For a person who doubts is like a wave tossed in the sea, tossed to and fro. You ought not to think you will receive anything if you do not ask in faith. Faith is the conduit. We want revival. We want revival to erupt. No point in praying if it's not a prayer of faith. No point in praying without keeping it in context. Context. Yeshua says, ask and ye shall receive. Now let me be clear. That doesn't mean you start asking for worldly things and you come back and say, Daniel, I don't know what happened. Let me be clear on something. If my, if my daughter, my 10-year-old were to come to me and ask me, well, it wouldn't be my 10-year-old, it would be my 8-year-old. She would be the one to come and ask for the keys to the car because she wants to go drive. I will do anything for my kids and I will give them anything, but not something that will harm them. The father is the same way. The father is the same way. And we read about in, in 1 John chapter 5, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Read that. I mean, that's powerful. And one thing I can absolutely biblically guarantee, the Lord desires revival. He desires to be with you. Proof positive. Go to Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Another faith builder. And you want to talk about going to prayer and building your faith? You know, I always have this concept that when I go to Yeshua, he's too busy for me. And I'm a nobody. There's no reason he should listen to me. And I'm sure there's many, many other people praying right now who have much greater problems than I or that have needs that are much higher than I. I'm going to tell you something. When the enemy comes in and starts whispering stuff like that to you, push him out and remind him and start quoting scripture in faith that Yeshua stands at the door and he knocks. He is waiting for you. I don't care what the devil is telling you. Push whatever he is telling you out of your heart, out of your mind, that Yeshua doesn't love you, that he doesn't care for you. That's already been proven. While we're still yet sinners, Mashiach died for us. That's a moot point. And we're told by Yeshua himself, he is standing at the door waiting for you. If he is standing at the door waiting for you, it's now up to you. Open the door. Go to prayer. Call upon his name in faith and watch what happens. See, this is why I know revival is coming here. I've read too much of scripture. I understand what it takes to make it happen. I understand the power of Yeshua and I understand his will. It's to bring glory to his name. When we line up with all of this, the fire is going to fall. And it's going to fall so heavy, I'm not going to be able to get you to leave. I already have a hard enough time doing that. But you will not leave because you're going to experience the presence of God. 
and it changes your life forever. Let me give you a real-life biblical example where we see men in Scripture following step two to the T, binding together in prayer. And the way they approach this prayer, you're going to see is in total faith, knowing that Yeshua is on the other side of the door. Open it. Open it. Open to me. I want you to see what happens when step two is followed, step one into. I want you to see what comes to fruition. Early on in the book of Acts, Peter and John, they're doing what they're called to do. They're going out healing in the name of Yeshua. They're spreading the gospel. Well, this doesn't go over too well with the leaders of the day, the chief priests and the elders. They get worked up about this. They actually call them and tell them, you are not allowed to speak and teach in this name. And there's just to further press the point that after chastising them, they beat them. They literally received a beating for the name of Yeshua and released them. Warning after they warned them, they released them, let them out. And this is what we read next in Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. I want to put this in context. Here we have just a few. We have a few brethren interlocking their shields of faith, moving in the prayer of the faith. And what are they praying for? They're praying for revival. They want revival. Look at this. They want boldness to speak the name of Yeshua. They want him to stretch out his hand and start healing. They want to see signs and wonders done through the name of Yeshua. Call that revival. And guess what they did? They prayed for it. See, this, is, this really is the template for us today to follow. Well, what happened when these just few men get together and they follow the correct formula? They open the door for Yeshua to come in for signs and wonders and healings. Well, this is what happens when they get done praying. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was answered and revival erupts. That's what happens when we pray for it. That's what happens when just a few of us get together with the vision, with the understanding that Yeshua is knocking at the door. We need to open the door. What you see unfolding right here in Acts is exactly what I see happening to this community with faith. Faith in Yeshua. Charles Spurgeon, when talking about revival, he had this to say. Oh, the coming together of the saints is the first part of Pentecost. He's actually going back to Acts 2, talking about when they got together. And the ingathering of the sinners is the second. It, listen to this, it began with only a prayer meeting, but it ended with a grand baptism of thousands of converts. It's revival. This is revival. It began with a little prayer. Again, do not let the Rashakeh, do not let Hasatan tell you you're just speaking into the air. You're just speaking words. They have no meaning. Because everything Yeshua has told me tells me the exact opposite. There's power in prayer. When you go to prayer, revere the living God. Go and reverence and understand what it is you are engaging in. 
This is the effect. We look at this. This is the effect that revival will have. The lives of people will literally be transformed in a moment. Addictions, the afflictions, the bondages, the oppression of dark forces, they're going to be destroyed. They'll be obliterated. There's nothing left when the Holy Spirit moves. John Wesley, powerful. Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I will shake the world. What a powerful and true statement. Give men who understand step one and step two that have returned to God. They've gotten right with God and they have binded themselves together for war. They're willing to go to war. They desire revival. Just a few men. Wesley acknowledges, just give me a few men and I will transform. I will shake the entire globe. So that's the power. Yeshua always does it with a few This is how it works. When the nuclear bomb of revival hit in the first century, it turned everything upside down. Read Acts 17. That was literally the assessment of the world looking on to what the apostles were doing. They said in Acts 17, they have come here and they have turned the world upside down. Now clearly they didn't do it on their own. It was the Holy Spirit doing what it does best through men. Men that serve the Lord. You look at some of the effects of revival and some of the things that we can expect to see with these signs and wonders and healings, but that's not it. See, when we read about revival in Scripture, people were selling their lands. In other words, they no longer took any value in the things of the world. Everything that the world told them was valuable, that they needed to have, they forsook. They forsook all of it. The things, you read Luke 16, the things that are highly esteemed among men, they are an abomination to God. And that heart sinks in. And it's this rejection of the world system, of the world's values. And all of a sudden, they began breaking bread with one another. They started encouraging one another daily. They started to value prayer. Getting together. What they valued was getting together and praying to the Lord. Talk about being disconnected, literally unplugged from the world. Revival does it. The name of Yeshua going forth and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what it has accomplished. That's what it will accomplish. With that said, I want to go to the last step today. Tori says, third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for him to use as he sees fit in winning others to Mashiach. That is all. You know, the reality if you carry out step one and two, this is just going to happen without even realizing it. You walk out step one and two, your life, giving your life for the Messiah is kind of the no-brainer at that point. But again, just to show you how biblical this concept is, we find this in the words of Yeshua again because listen to what he says because what R.A. Tori says is you're, you're going to have to leave everything to serve the living God. You must be willing to do that. Well, what did Yeshua say in Matthew 16, 24? Then Yeshua said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See, that's the key thing. Follow me. Not conceptually have an idea that he rose from the dead and go about your life living in the world. No, you leave the world and follow him. 
Wherever he leads you, that's where you go. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul? If we want revival, we're going to have to lay it all down. We want revival to come here. I'm telling you, you're going to have to lay it down. All the strings that have, the world has connected in you and it's pulling you like a puppet, you've got to cut them. Allow, you, until you cut those strings, you are not going to allow the Holy Spirit to flow in power through your life. You will be inhibited. You do not want to do that. Time is short. This is one thing we, I think we all can agree on. Time is short. There's no time left to be living for the world. Romans 13, 11. And do this knowing the time that now is the high time to wake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. There's an urgency here. Paul is saying every day that goes by, it is closer. We're getting closer and closer. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the work of darkness and let us put on the armor of light because we're at war. It's time to put on the armor of Yeshua. This is, this, is, this is what we need to have. And I'm going to tell you something. After actually being and experiencing, not just witnessing, but experiencing myself, which I might talk a little bit about next week, experiencing revival, an authentic move of the Holy Spirit. One of the things I can tell you, and this is one of the scary things that I see happening, this lull that has come over the church in general where this concept of seeker-sensitive has come in. Let me tell you my my big problem with seeker-sensitive. There's no urgency for salvation. And I'm going to tell you something about revival. A common denominator of every single revival where there's been an authentic move of the Holy Spirit, in every single instance, you will find an urgency where somebody's up there proclaiming the word of the Lord that you need to change now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. See, this is the message. It is urgent. This is one of the things to expect when there's true revival coming to a community. They ought to be preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeshua is at the door. It's now. Now is the time to do this. I want to close again with Spurgeon talking about revival. And he really gets into a prayer and it just applies. It kind of sets the tone, if you will. Oh, that the prayers of believers may act as lodestones to sinners. Oh, that every gathering of faithful men might be a lure to attract others to Jesus. Let me tell you something. If there's true revival, if we are living for the Lord and the Holy Spirit is not in us, just in us, it is flowing out of us, giving life to men, it will attract others. It will. It's contagious. The fire will spread. People will see that you are different. You are not normal. You have joy in the midst of the world falling apart. And the world is falling apart at the seams. And judgment is coming upon this nation. We need revival. This is what we need. May many souls fly to Yeshua because they see others speeding in that direction. Lord, we turn from these poor foolish procrastinators to thyself and we plead for them. With thine all-wise and gracious spirit, Lord, turn them, and they shall be turned. 
by their conversion, pray that a true revival has commenced tonight. Let it spread throughout our households and then run from church to church to the whole of Christendom, or what I would call Judeo-Christianity, shall be ablaze with a heaven-descended fire. What an awesome, powerful statement. A statement, a conviction. You can just feel the Holy Spirit coming out, desiring. Yeshua desires His creation. Yeshua desires His people, the people He died for. He's not willing that any should perish. There has to be an urgency. So I cast the vision with you, ask you to join with me in prayer. We need to pray for revival. We need to pray for a real move of the Holy Spirit where there are real healings and the things that happen here reach the ears of Jerusalem. This is what we need to pray for.